Well, friends, would you uh, turn with me, please, to the words that we read in Luke chapter 22. Uh, Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. And reading at verse 31 to 34, we read, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Last week I was with... Ali MacDonald from Smithton, and she asked me what I enjoy most about the ministry. And I told her that I love visiting people, but there are some visits that aren't so easy, and it's got absolutely nothing to do with the person. Instead, it's when you get to their gate and you see on the gate that there's a sign saying, Beware of the dog. Beware of the dog. And those kind of signs leave my my stomach absolutely churning and in knots. Well, this morning we're continuing our studies in the life of Peter and we're looking at the warning, the, the caution that Jesus gives to Peter. We're looking at this under two headings. We're looking at a fearsome adversity and then a faithful advocate. A fearsome adversity and then a faithful advocate. First, the fearsome adversity. Look at verse 31. Here Luke focuses on the fearsome enemy who is facing Peter. Before going any further, let's situate ourselves in the chapter. In verses 1 and 2, we find the chief priests and the scribes plotting the death of Jesus. Then in verses 3 down to 6, we find Satan entering Judas, who then meets with the chief priests and the officers and makes arrangements regarding how he will betray Jesus. In verses 7 to 23, we find Jesus instituting his holy supper, his new covenant meal of bread and wine that will point to his death uh, and what that death will accomplish. Then in verses 24 to 30, we find the disciples arguing among themselves about which one of them was the greatest. Jesus is now just a few hours away from the cross. In a few hours, he will be arrested in Gethsemane. He will be crucified at Calvary. He will be placed in a grave belonging to Joseph of Arimathea. The climactic moment of Jesus' long-anticipated work of redemption is now in sight. The finish line is in view. But this is also described by Luke as being the hour of the power of darkness. And during this dark hour, satanic assaults are going to come with full force against both Jesus and his disciples. And it's at that point that we hear Jesus' solemn admonition. Look at verse 31. Jesus begins by addressing Peter with the words, Simon, Simon, behold. Jesus means business as he uses the name of this disciple twice. He only does this on two other occasions in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 10, he cautions his friend Martha over her misplaced priorities with the words, Martha, Martha. 
Then in Luke chapter 13, he cautions the city of Jerusalem over her unbelief with the words, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. There is, there is an urgency in Jesus' words, the very tone that he uses as he says, Simon, Simon. And it's interesting to note that Jesus uses that name, Simon. In John chapter 1, Jesus had given this fisherman, Simon the son of John or Jonah, the nickname Peter, meaning rock. But this same rock-like follower is going to show himself to be a frail and fragile man with feet of clay. He will show himself to be a man who is lacking in rock-like dependability and durability. And Jesus says here, Simon, Simon, behold. Simon, Simon, pay attention. Simon, Simon, take note. Jesus carries on with these solemn words. Satan has demanded you. Jesus speaks about this figure called Satan. The word Satan means adversity or accuser. He is mentioned in Zechariah chapter 3 as the one who stood before the Lord accusing Joshua, the high priest. And here Jesus speaks about Satan demanding to have you. The, the pronoun you in Greek is in the plural, which indicates that Jesus isn't referring to Simon Peter alone, but rather to this whole group of disciples, this whole group of men. And Jesus is saying here, Satan is demanding to have them. It is strong language. It is the language of a lawsuit. It is, it's, it's very passionate language. It is as if Satan is coming before God saying, I want Peter. And I want all these other men. And I have a right to them. I have a claim on them. Because these men are sinners. It's the same idea that we find in Job chapter 1. Where Satan comes before God in his court. And he says to God. I want to afflict Job. I want to assault Job. Because Job is not a righteous man. It's the same idea that we find in Revelation chapter 12. Where Satan comes before God and he accuses the Lord's people night and day of all their faults, all their flaws, all their failings. That is what Satan does. He comes before God and he says, I want that man, I want that woman, and I deserve to have them because, because they are sinners. And Jesus says that Satan has demanded to have Peter and these other disciples so that he might sift them like wheat. Let's consider that image. In Jesus' day, a woman would have a sieve in her hands and she would shake it. She would sift it vigorously to separate the wheat from the chaff. The, the fine wheat would fall through the surface and be used for, for baking and other things. The, the, the harder chaff would remain on the surface and the chaff would eventually be discarded and disposed of. The sifting was a process of separation. And Jesus is saying here that Satan wants to do this with Peter and these other disciples. He wants to take them and he wants to shake them. He wants to tear into them and tear them apart. He wants to pick them off one by one and pick them to pieces. He wants to toss them about in such a way that he will eventually separate them from Jesus and the life, the hope the glory that are found in Jesus. And so Jesus takes this moment to lovingly warn Peter and the other disciples that this is Satan's aim for them. 
This is Satan's ambition for them in these dark hours. Satan is their fearsome enemy. And he's going to do his utmost to try and separate them from Jesus. And you know, friends, as we consider these verses, we are being reminded that Satan the devil is a fearsome adversary. Satan the devil is a fearsome adversary. That is what we see in Luke 22. Jesus is telling Peter and those with him that Satan is real. And he is not just telling them that Satan is real. He is telling them that Satan is active and dangerous. And that he is doing all that he can to sift them and separate them from him. Jesus wants his disciples to see that Satan, the devil, is a fearsome adversary. And you get the feeling that Peter really took that to heart because later in life he would write that Christians are to be sober-minded and they are to be watchful. Why? Well, he says, because your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking just one person, any person, to devour. And friends, that is so important for us to remember today. The devil is real. The 19th century French poet Charles Baudelaire once said, The greatest devil, the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. I'll say that again. The greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he doesn't exist. And we see that. We see that as people today laugh at the idea of a devil who is real. We see that as people treat the devil as a bit of light-hearted fun. Dress your children up as a little devil for Halloween. And even Christians don't give all that much thought to the devil. They don't think of him as prowling around their homes, prowling around their workplaces, prowling around their churches, prowling around a service like today's service. But Jesus is unequivocal and uncompromising in reminding his followers that the devil is real. And not only is he real, he is active and dangerous. He's always on the move. He's always at work. He's always launching attacks. He's always doing his utmost to prohibit and prevent, hinder, hamper and hold back a person from coming to Jesus in faith. And when a person eventually comes to Jesus in faith, he is always trying to push that person, pull that person, prod that person away from Jesus. Charles Spurgeon understood this. And wrote, the point of Satan's chief attack on a believer is their faith. The devil is always trying to destroy a person's faith. Sometimes he'll attempt to destroy a person's faith by placing them in the sieve of pleasure and comfort. You know when things are so easy that you give no thought to Jesus? And at other times he will try to destroy a person's faith by putting them into his sieve of pain and confusion. And maybe some of you are feeling that even today, that your life is so full of pain, your life is so full of confusion, that, that you're just not giving much thought to Jesus. The devil is a very clever and cunning creature. And he's been studying the human condition for thousands of years. 
and he's been studying each and every one of us throughout our whole existence. He has a PhD on our physical condition, our mental condition, our emotional condition, our spiritual condition. He, he knows the areas where we are strongest and he knows the areas where we're weakest. And he knows just how to get at each and every one of us. And he's going to try and get at us in different ways. The way he'll go at me will be very different to the way he'll go at Spangy. The way he'll go at Spangy will be very different to the way that he'll go at Malcolm. But he will have a goal. Phil Riken writes, Do you know how much danger you're in? I think of the girl who ran away from God as soon as she went to college. I think of the family that decided that they didn't need to be in church because that is not where God is at work anymore. I think of the man who felt so powerless against Satan that he went back to a lifestyle of sexual sin. The most dangerous thing in the world is to fail to realize the danger that we're in. So this morning, friends, let's pay attention to Jesus' solemn admonition. And remember that Satan, the devil, is a fearsome adversity. But then we come second to a faithful advocate. Look at verses 33 and 34. And here Luke focuses on the faithful friend who is praying for Peter. We have just heard Jesus' solemn admonition. He has singled out Peter, but he has also addressed this whole group of disciples. And he has warned them that Satan is wanting to sift them like wheat. He is wanting to separate them from Jesus. And having heard Jesus' solemn admonition, we can move to Jesus' strong assurance. Look at verse 32. Jesus begins by saying, but I have prayed for you. I love that word, but. It changes and transforms a whole trajectory. In Genesis 8 we read, but God remembered Noah. In Genesis 12 we read, but God afflicted Pharaoh. In 2 Samuel chapter 11 we read, but the thing that David did displeased the Lord. In Ephesians chapter 2 we read, but God being rich in mercy made us alive in Christ. And here Jesus says, but I have prayed for you. The devil has demanded to have Peter and these other disciples that he might sift them as sweet, that he might take them and tear them apart. And here Jesus says, but I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you. And Jesus says, but I have prayed for you, singular. In verse 31, Jesus said that Satan demanded to have you, plural, meaning all the disciples. And now in verse 32, Jesus says, but I have prayed for you, singular. Meaning Jesus hasn't simply prayed for this group of men in general. You, you know what it's like. I do it myself. I say, oh Lord, I pray for this congregation. But that is not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying that he has prayed for these men in general. He is saying, I have prayed for each of them in, in name. I have prayed for each of them in particular. And I have prayed for you, especially Peter. And Jesus says that he has been praying that Peter's faith may not fail. Well, he doesn't pray that Peter will be spared from Satan's sifting. Neither does he pray that Peter will not fail while experiencing Satan's sifting. Instead, he's praying that Peter's faith, P 
Peter's faith will not fail despite Satan's sifting. Peter may faint. Peter may fail. Peter may feel that he has absolutely nothing left. Nothing but just a thin thread of faith. But if that thread of faith is still united to Jesus, if it is still connected to Jesus, if it is still touching Jesus, then that is enough. And so Jesus says, Peter, I I have prayed for you. And I pray that even though you may faint, and even though you may fail, your faith may not fail. And Jesus carries on and says, and when you have turned again. Jesus says that Peter will turn again. He will repent. He will once again be found going in the right direction. And isn't it wonderful? I know we're focusing on words in quite a bit of detail today. But but isn't it wonderful that Jesus doesn't say if you turn again. He says when you turn again. There is a world of difference between if Peter turns and when Peter turns. Jesus is confident that Peter will turn again. That his failure will not be the end for him. It will not be the last word on him. But Jesus isn't finished. Because he goes on and he says, strengthen your brothers. A Peter will return. Peter will repent. But he will not simply return. He will not simply repent. He will be restored. And he will be used once again in the gospel ministry of strengthening his brothers. And we'll see that in a few weeks. In John chapter 21, Jesus will reinstate Peter with the words, Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. I'm not finished with you, Peter. And then later in the book of Acts, we'll find that Peter is the one who who the Lord uses to lead the early church. Takes them forward. And then later, still in the New Testament, we'll find Peter writing encouraging letters to Christians who feel like they are living in exile. Christians who feel that this world just isn't home. Jesus is saying, Peter, you're going to fail. Peter, you are going to fall apart. Peter, you are going to be so full of flaws But you're failing, you're falling apart, your flaws are not going to be the last word on you. And why will they not be the last word on Peter? Because Jesus has prayed for him. And then in verses 33 and 34, we move from the strong assurance to the startling attitude. Once again, we find that Peter, and we've seen it again and again, you remember how I compared Peter a few weeks ago to a, a girl I was in school with, and you just thought, will you please be quiet? This girl could never stop talking. Well, well, that's Peter. Even in this very serious conversation, and he's just up there yapping away again. He has just heard Jesus' solemn admonition, just heard Jesus' strong assurance, And he now exhibits the startling attitude as he says, Lord, I'm willing to go to prison and to death with you. Peter really believes that he's got all the resources in and of himself to stick with Jesus through thick and thin. Yeah, John may fail. Yeah, James may fail. Yes, all the others may fail, but not Peter. It's really the Titanic of all testimonies. Peter's looking Jesus in the eye and he's saying, 
I'm never going to sink. And maybe I've known this when we say we'll never sink and the iceberg's already underneath us. So easy for Peter to make strong and passionate statements in the upper room, surrounded by the other boys, putting on the bravado, putting on the the macho attitude, but it's going to be far harder in a few hours' time when he'll find himself alone. And he'll find himself cold in the courtyard of the high priest. And he'll find himself surrounded not by his fellow disciples, but by soldiers and guards. And Jesus responds by delivering a sobering reply to Peter. This, this proud peacock who's strutting around in front of the others. Look at what Jesus says, verse 34. He, he doesn't argue with Peter. Doesn't try cutting Peter down to size, saying, Excuse me, Peter, one minute. Don't you remember what happened on the lake when, when you took your eyes off me? Don't you remember how you began to sink a couple of years ago? There's none of that with Jesus. Instead, he looks at Peter with love, looks at him with sadness, looks at him with concern. And he says, verse 34, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Now, friends, as we consider these verses, we've been reminded that Jesus, the Lord, is a faithful advocate. That's what we see in Luke 22. Jesus is telling Peter that Satan has been demanding to have him so that he might sift him like wheat. He has been telling Peter and those with him that Satan has been doing his utmost to separate them from Jesus. And now Jesus tells Peter and those with him that he has been praying for them. He has been praying for Peter so that Peter's faith may not fail. Jesus has been praying for Peter so that Peter's failure as a disciple will not be the final last word on him. Jesus has been praying for Peter so that Peter will once again turn, once again repent and once again strengthen his brothers. Jesus wants his disciples to know that he, their Lord, is a faithful advocate who prays for his people. And I love that. That's so important for us today. Satan is a fearsome adversary who wants to sift and separate every Christian from Jesus and the life that is found in Jesus. But Jesus is the faithful advocate who prays for his people at his Father's right hand. And he's a faithful advocate who prays that his faithful followers will not fail. Their faith will not fail. He, he prays about their chronic pain, that they will not stop trusting in his goodness. He prays about their troubled marriages, that they will not stop trusting in his love. He prays about their challenging financial situation, that they will not stop trusting in his care. He prays about their discouragements, their dark nights of the soul, that they won't stop trusting in his nearness, his closeness, his presence. He, he prays about their backsliding, 
<laughs> that they will not stop trusting in his grace, that he is the one who will take them back. J.C. Ryle writes, The continued existence of grace in a believer's heart is a great standing miracle. His enemies are so mighty, his strength is so small, the world is so full of snares, his heart is so weak that it seems at first sight impossible for him to reach heaven. The passage before us explains his safety. He has a mighty friend at the right hand of God. That's the good news that we have before us today. We come today not simply to remember that Jesus is crucified. We come to remember that he is risen, that he has ascended, and that even today he is praying for his people at his Father's right hand. That's where Jesus is, praying for his people at his Father's right hand. He is the faithful friend, the faithful advocate who will not fail or forsake his people. Last week I was reading about a famous preacher, John Kennedy, who was minister in Dingwall. And on one occasion he was preaching at a communion service in Thurzo. Remember that very exotic place where the nicest ministers come from? Uh, and, he, and he was preaching in Thurzo on this text from Luke 22. And as he was preaching, he encouraged every tempted, tempest-tossed soul in Caithness or elsewhere to lay all its weight on this gracious advocate, all its guilty yesterday, all its sinful today, and all its unknown tomorrow. Well, friends, this morning, let's pay attention to Jesus' word of assurance and remember that he is a faithful advocate He is a faithful advocate for those who are wearied and wayward and wandering. He is a faithful advocate for those who are tempted and tempest-tossed. And the only question that we need to address is, have we laid our weight on him? Have we laid our trust on him? Have we laid our faith on him. Peter thought he had it all, everything that he needed. And Jesus says, no, Peter, you need a faithful advocate. And Peter will learn that in a very hard way that God willing will see next week. Let's pray.